Well, good morning. We're in the book of Romans today, so if you have your Bibles, you can turn to Romans chapter 5. We're going to pick up where we did a couple of weeks ago. I do appreciate very much David taking the pulpit the last couple of weeks and introducing us to the book of 2 Peter. I'm sure we'll continue that um, in days ahead. But we're back in Romans today. We're, again, we're going to pick up where we left off, which is somewhat unfortunate because this passage is hard to just take a break in the middle of for a couple of weeks and come back and know what Paul was talking about. So we'll try to catch you up as we move through some of these truths today. But Romans chapter 5, if you don't have a Bible, there should be some in uh, the little racks underneath the chairs in front of you, and you can take and read there, or uh, the words to these passages will be on the screen behind me. Romans chapter 5, we'll begin with verse 15, and we're just going to read three verses today, verses 15 through 17. It says this, but the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin, for the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation. But the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if, because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Okay, I told you it was tough to just jump right back in and know what was going on. But in this section of Romans Chapter 5, Paul here is teaching on the differences of between being united with Adam, being in Adam, and being in Christ. But to understand this, we have to go back to the analysis of this section that we did way back at the beginning when we started verse 12. And this section goes through from verse 12 to the end of the chapter, verse 21. You may remember that when we went over this, we noted in those verses that Paul, again, is writing about Christ and Adam, and that at the beginning of this, back in verse 12, he started to develop a very important comparison. Let's look at verse 12 real quickly. It says, therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. See, that sounds like the, the first half of a thought because that happens. Something else must differ from that or have resolved that. So he begins this comparison in verse 12. And probably Paul intended to go on next to the truth we find in verse 18 where he says, therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification in life for all men. So here's the other half of the thought. We have the sin of Adam that leads to condemnation and death. And here we have one act of one man, one act of righteousness 
that leads to justification in life for all men. But back in verse 12, when Paul got to that statement, because all sinned, he interrupted his thought. And we've already talked about that. Paul does that frequently. In fact, he does it twice in this one passage. It seems that he thought the majority of his readers would be confused by the words because all sinned. I mean, what would you think that meant? He didn't think they would have the faintest idea what he was talking about. He was afraid they would think that only meant that all people sin. All people commit sins. But what Paul meant was that all of us were accounted sinners in Adam's sin. In that first transgression, we all sinned. And that's what he meant, but he didn't think people would catch that. So he did the only sensible thing. He broke off what he was about to say. He skipped going straight to verse 18. And he started to explain himself. And verse 13 and 14 are that explanation. In it, he shows that, that the punishment for sin, which is death, was in the world even before the law was given by Moses. We talked about this, do you recall? No law up until Moses. And yet people still died. And we know that the penalty for sin is death. So they must have been condemned not just for their own transgressions, though they were guilty of plenty of behavior and activity that was not pleasing to God. But they were found guilty because of the sin of Adam. That's what Paul is teaching. So Paul's point is that we were condemned by reason of our union with Adam, just as now we have been saved by virtue of our union with Jesus Christ. That is a very important and a very great similarity between Adam and Christ. But when we preached that sermon a few weeks ago, I mentioned that next we would look at the differences. And I think here you might think, well, now Paul can go to verse 18 because he's cleared up what it means that we all sinned. But he doesn't do that. And the reason must be that when he got to the end of verse 14, he began to think maybe some further clarification was needed. He'd said that we are united to Christ just like we were united to Adam. But he must have said to himself, I can't give the impression that that parallel holds true at every level. Although it's true, we're justified in Christ. Just as we have been condemned in Adam, that is only part of the story. The differences are as great as the similarities. We are condemned in Adam, true. But the salvation that we now have because of our union with Christ is far greater and more glorious. And so for that reason, Paul interjects here what I think I referred to earlier as a parenthesis, a parenthetical statement within another parenthetical statement. Or you could just say, 
a further digression. Paul thinks, well, I need to do a little more explaining before we get to the climactic verse. So in verses 13 and 14, he talked about how we've sinned in Adam. And now in verses 15, 17, what we'll look at, he is going to show how our union with Christ is greater in its nature and greater in its effects than our original union with Adam. So we're going to look at these contrasts this morning. We're going to look at three. Because Paul sets out these contrasts in these three verses, 15, 16, and 17. But actually the paragraph that we're looking at is filled with contrasts. You have trespass versus gift. You have death versus eternal life. Condemnation versus justification. You have one versus many. Sin versus righteousness. Adam versus Christ. And then when we get to verse 18 and finish out the chapter, we see even more disobedience versus obedience. Sinners versus those who have been made righteous. And law versus grace. So this section is full of contrasts. And the final idea that we'll close with today will be that this reign of grace, this reign of life is the climax to which the chapter points. It supports the position we started with in Romans chapter 5, and that was that the one who has been joined to Christ by faith is secure in that relationship. So let's look at these contrasts. We'll begin with verse 15. And you could label this one if, if you want. I didn't make slides to label these. You could label it natural versus supernatural if you wanted to. And I think you'll see as we go through why I did that. But verse 15 is maybe the most difficult because it's the least explicit. Let's read it. It says, but the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more of the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. So in what way is the free gift not like the trespass? What does that mean? And in what sense is this gift much more? Well, I think the first place to start is to recognize that this verse is almost a generic statement to cover what is to come. It is an inclusive statement that includes the truths we'll study this morning, these other contrasts. And so you could say um, that the, the rest of the chapter is considered exposition of this truth, this verse. But still, I think it's fair to ask, what is the contrast shown here? What does verse 15 introduce So, what I would suggest to you is that the contrast is found in the first key word that Paul uses after he says, the free gift is not like the trespass. And that key word is the word died. But the free gift is not like the trespass, for if many died, that I think is going to be the key. The sin of Adam brought death. It brought death to everyone. 
By contrast, the gift of God brought life to many, to all who would believe in him. And, and I don't think we need to get misled or hung up on this word many. <clears throat> to most people today, many suggests a number. When you say many, what do you mean? Ten? A million? So when we hear the word many, it, it, all ref, it comes back to the context. If I say many of you in here, the number really can't be much higher than about 120 because that's how many people are in here. But if I say many people in this city, then it could be much greater than that. So don't get hung up on the word many. We want to think, we want to weigh the many who sinned and fell with Adam against the many who were saved in Christ. And we want to know which one is greater. Does this verse teach that the saved will eventually outnumber the lost? Well, there are some people who think that's what it means. Or does it teach that eventually all will be saved, which is universalism? I don't think it teaches either of those. Paul has been thinking here all through this passage about the union of the race with Adam and the union of the saved with Christ. That is the main theme here. He's not thinking quantitatively at all. So when he writes of the many who died because of Adam's transgression, that's just what he means. The many who've died. And in this case, it's everyone. And when he writes of the many to whom the gift of life overflows, he simply means the many are being saved. And you think, well, what's the contrast then if it's not between a smaller number and a greater number? That seems to be the obvious contrast here. It is, as I suggested, between death, which has come upon all because of Adam and life, which is available through our union with Christ. So why did I say that you could call this contrast natural versus supernatural? Well, the reason is because death is a natural thing. Natural in the sense that if we are left to ourselves without any supernatural intervention, death simply comes. God told Adam and Eve if they ate of the fruit of the forbidden tree, that they would die. And they ate of it. And they did die. It didn't require any special intervention of God to produce the effect. Sin always produces death. Moreover, it produces death equally for all. Because Adam sinned, death passed in a natural and inevitable way upon the whole human race. To that extent, the secularists are right when they say that death is a normal biological sequence in which organisms are born, mature, grow old, and eventually die. It is natural in that way. But the free gift is not like the trespass, is how this passage begins. Over and against the natural outworking of sin, which results in death for all, 
stands the supernatural working of a gracious God. Left to ourselves, the cause is hopeless. Nothing is more characteristic of the presence of man upon this earth than cemeteries. Everywhere you go, every town, there's at least one. But God has not left us to ourselves. He's intervened supernaturally to save us. And it's a completely apart from anything we can do or have ever done. I mean, you remember what Paul said back in Ephesians 2? This is a very familiar passage. Verse 1, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead and our trespasses made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved. And he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. That's why when Paul later in Romans writes about this, he kind of does a very abbreviated version of what we read in our text this morning. He says in verse 23 of chapter 6, for the wages of sin is death. That's the natural part we've been talking about. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. There's the supernatural part. And think of what this allows. It allows all glory to go to God because he does all the work. And it means that our salvation is certain because God does all the work. The work of God is a lasting thing, unlike our own weak achievements. It is the work of God and not man because of that work that it says in Romans 8.39 that we will be, nothing will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. You see, this passage teaches us that God's grace is greater than man's sin. Christ is more powerful, powerful to save than Adam was to destroy. The power of sin, which is death, can be broken. But the power of Christ, which is salvation, cannot. The contrast is between natural and supernatural. Paul told Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 10, And now and which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. 
So what kind of contrast does all of this teach us? Just verse 15. Jesus Christ broke the power of sin and death, but the converse is not true. Sin and death cannot break the power of Jesus Christ. The condemnation of Adam's sin is reversible. The redemption of Jesus Christ is not. The effect of Adam's is permanent only if not nullified by Christ. The effect of Christ's act, however, is permanent for believing individuals and not subject to reversal or nullification. That's why we have great assurance that once we are in Jesus Christ, we are in him forever. So verse 15 is supernatural and natural, the contrast that we have there. Let's move to verse 16. And we could call this one sin versus many sins. We see those phrases in the passage. Let's read it together. And the free gift, this is verse 16, is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation. But the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. Again, this is pretty easy to understand, the contrast here. It's laid out a little more clearly between one trespass that brought condemnation, that is Adam's sin, and the many trespasses which Adam and all who followed him have committed, but which are atoned for by the blood of Christ. Let me elaborate it this way. Imagine, if you will, And we know this is impossible, but just for the sake of argument, imagine this. That the one sin of Adam in eating of the forbidden fruit in the Garden of Eden was the only sin Adam ever committed. And assume even further that all of his offspring after him, Eve, who was taken directly from his body, his children, his grandchildren, Generation after generation, all the way down to you and me and our contemporaries, never committed a sin. No sins were committed in thought, in word, or in deed. If that was the case, it would still have been necessary for Jesus to die to save us. That is how much God hates sin. Since we are condemned for Adam's sin, he being our federal head, as we talked about, our federal representative, we would still need a Savior to rescue us from that original sin and the condemnation that came from it. And even even if that had been the situation, one sin in all of history, and Jesus had come to earth to save us from the effects of that sin, salvation would still have been glorious. And the angels would still rightly use their time singing as they do in Revelation 5, 9, 
Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. But we know that was not the case. Adam's one sin did bring condemnation to all from which Christ has redeemed us. But Adam's one sin was not the only sin Christ died for. Adam, having become a sinner, sinned many more times before he died. And Adam's many sins were followed by countless billions of sins committed by countless billions of people. All of whom added their own evils and arrogance and brutality and malice and other vices to the grim moral history of mankind. What is the essence of human history? Well, from God's point of view, it's this from Romans chapter 1. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They were full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. Since Christ died for such a vast accumulation of sins, it's no wonder that Paul wrote here in chapter 5, verse 16, the judgment following the trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. Verse 15 that we just read a moment ago demonstrated how much God hates sin. This verse, verse 16, shows how much God loves sinners. Let's move on to the third great contrast here. And it's in verse 17. You could call this death versus the reign of life. Death versus the reign of life. Verse 17 says, For if, because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. As I read through this, the word that kept coming back to me that I kept really just needing to emphasize in my own mind was abundance. And that's in that phrase, the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness. How much grace do you think it takes to save you? How much grace do you think God bestows upon you to save you? Just a little? As little as possible? Does he ration his grace? This verse refers to the abundance of grace. And those of us in Christ who have thus been abundantly blessed are unable to reign in, that, in life through Jesus. 
To put it simply, the work of Christ in dying for us did not merely restore us to the position in which Adam stood before his fall. It's way beyond that. One commentator, Robin, uh, Robert Haldane, states, those redeemed by the death of Christ are not merely recovered from the fall, but made to reign through Jesus Christ, to which they had no title in Adam's communion. D. Martin Lloyd-Jones writes again in his commentary on Romans, he says, it is not only that we are forgiven, but over and above being forgiven, the righteousness of Jesus Christ is put to our account, is put upon us. Unfallen Adam was righteous, but it was his own righteousness as a created being. It was the righteousness of a man. Adam never had the righteousness of Jesus Christ upon him. What he lost was his own righteousness. But you and I are not merely given back a human righteousness, the righteousness that Adam had before he fell. We are given the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Much more. Abundance. Superabundance. Give full weight to it. We receive this abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness. Had Adam remained in his own state of personal righteousness, he could have sung, In my own righteousness I stand, soon to join God's glorious band, a perversion of the hymn's chorus. But Adam did not stand. He fell because he wasn't by his own strength able to conform himself to God's standard of righteousness. Similarly, when we attempt to stand in our own righteousness, assuming that we could attain to it in the first place, we will also fall. But we don't fall. We stand instead. And the reason we stand is that we do not stand on our own righteousness. Moreover, it's not only that we will stand in the final day of judgment, but we stand now, which is what the phrase reign in life refers to. It means by the grace of Jesus Christ, by the love of God and the communion with him and the empowering of the Holy Spirit, we're victorious now. In this way, the gift of God in Christ far surpasses the effects of Adam's and other, all other transgressions. You see, the one who has granted us spiritual life will, will fulfill that life in us. Philippians chapter 1 says, And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. So there's three contrasts. But I want to close with a phrase that is sprinkled throughout this and that I think is incredibly important. It is the phrase, through the one man, that is through Jesus Christ. These phrases, one similar to this, occur in verse 17. We've also encountered them in verse 15 where it says, by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, it abounded for many. 
So let's talk about that briefly. I'm going to ask our musicians to come on back to the stage as I close with this thought. Later in verses 19 and 21, we see very similar phrases by the one man's obedience and then through Jesus Christ, our Lord. You see, Paul never leaves this idea out because it is the one glorious and absolutely essential truth in this passage. We were in Adam once and we fell in him. His sin brought death on the human race. Well, what then? Well, we have good news. We can escape the effects of Adam's fall, Paul tells us. More than that, we can rise above the position that Adam initially held. We can stand in divine righteousness, which is perfect and can never be taken away from us. It enables us to reign in life, triumphing over sin, as Adam and his own human righteousness could not. Therefore, we can sing, uh, sing on Christ the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand. So the question is, are you in Jesus? Adam was not in Jesus and he fell, even from his high pinnacle of human perfection. If he, who was at one time perfectly human, fell, what chance do you have to stand you who are corrupted by many sins and wholly disposed to unrighteousness. How are you going to stand? Well, your only hope is to believe on Jesus and to be joined to him just as you were originally joined to Adam. To reign in life through Christ is to have power over sin. Later, Paul would write in chapter 6, but thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you are committed and having been set free from sin have become slaves of righteousness. <laughs> However, we as believers know full well that we are still plagued by sin. We're still clothed in the sinful rags of our old self. And we war against it. Ephesians 4.22 says to put off your old self which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires. But the truth is that sin is no longer the nature or the master of the believer. In Christ we are no longer victims of sin but victors over sin. 1 Corinthians 15, 57 says this, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. The same phrase we see in Romans chapter 5. Through the one man, Jesus Christ, we receive victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Will you pray with me?